we're a fully virtual program, so everything happens through an app. Uh, so then those patients are, are talking with us almost every day. We talk to, on average, we talk to our patients every day. And that's just not a sustainable model for a traditional primary care practice. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here, you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Today on Inside Reproductive Health, I hosted Evan Richardson, who is the CEO and founder of a new tech health startup called Form Health. Before I get into my show with Evan, today my shout out goes to doctors Adam Griffin and Mike Sullivan from Buffalo IVF, who are the reasons that I got into this field more than seven years ago now, starting from a small rural village in Bolivia for $500 a month doing organic social media to now something that is unrecognizable to that venture. And uh, so a shout out to those guys. I don't know if they listen to the show, but you have been telling people, people have been getting the shout outs because you've been texting them. So if you call on those guys or if you're friends with them, Please text them, let them know they were in this shout out today's show with Evan. I know some people are going to be grumpy with me because they want to come on the show. I've got to be real protective of who I have on the show because this is the media platform for REIs and business people in the field and practice owners. So I've got to be really careful. Most of the time, I don't let industry side folks on although sponsorship is a different option available, but I thought it was important to talk about the ways that tech can help us, if not triage patients, at least help you treat the patients that you need to be treating, doing the things that you need and want to be doing, and then letting more efficient solutions help with that which you don't. So I, if I sound incredulous in this interview with Evan, it's just because I was trying to be uh, a good steward of how you might be combing through their value proposition. I'm not a clinician. I did my best. So you can take a listen to this show with Evan. He's been in the tech space for a while, the, the health tech space for a while. He was an early employee at Castlight Health. He's a member of the board of directors of Bicycle Health. He was part of the founding management team at Ground, Grand Rounds, which is also a telemedical concierge. And so he's he is now in this VC startup world very much. And I hope you enjoy the show. Mr. Richardson, Evan, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Very happy to be here. Thanks for, uh, thanks for making time. I've got to tell you that I'm a little bit not looking forward to when this episode comes out for a reason that we've gotten, I've gotten very protective of the audience of the show in the last couple of years, because now we're sort of the only media outlet for the business side of fertility, which has a lot of people asking me like, Hey, can I come on the show? Can I, can I pitch this? Or can we talk about this topic? And, and now like, I also want to get to the point where we're in sponsorship mode. I, 
I didn't think that that was the realm that you were in, but I just know that people that have asked me to come on are going to be like, what the heck? Why'd you let that guy on? You didn't let us. <laughs> I do have an explanation, but I, and I want to go back into the, I, I want to start backwards a little bit before we talk about what form health is, but if we could start with just why fertility, what is, what is the relationship to fertility? Then I'll get my answer and then we'll work back and then forward again. <laughs> well, that, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. So, so I feel like to, to answer that question, I need to tell a little bit about form, which is that we are a concierge telemedical weight loss service. So we work within the realm of medical support. We are, we are a medical practice. We treat patients and we work with those individuals to meet their broader healthcare goals within the context of helping them to lose weight. And it turns out that weight loss can be really important for fertility for a number of reasons. For a number of practices, folks have a, a BMI cutoff and patients who come in above that cutoff can't receive certain services because risks uh, because of risks around sedation. For other folks, there's uh, you know a real demand for surrogates, but sometimes those surrogates don't meet uh, a BMI threshold uh, that's required. And then for the broad population, you know risks around risks around becoming pregnant and then carrying a child to term all go up as BMI goes up from, from the sort of obesity level, which is, which is a BMI of 30. And so we've worked with fertility practices now for, for quite a while to help them to uh, bring patients into the realm of being uh, treatable from a fertility perspective, uh, bring their BMI down below any sort of hard, uh, hard ceilings they may have uh, to increase the number of surrogates that they have available. And then also just to, to improve uh, sort of all of the outcomes related to fertility, all by helping their patients reduce their, their body mass index. And it turns out that, you know, the relation between uh, the relationship between fertility and BMI is fairly clear, right? All risk to becoming pregnant or to carrying a child to term come down as a patient brings their BMI back towards the, uh, the sort of clinically normal threshold below a BMI uh, of 30. And, and that's really where we help. That's where we work with uh, fertility providers to help to improve uh, all of their outcomes and broaden the base of patients and surrogates that they can work with. What other subspecialties of healthcare, if any, are you working with? Yeah, well, so that's a that's a really great question. The answer is 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 all. So so you know we work with primary care providers. We work with OBGYNs. We work with folks in the orthopedic space, and then you know kind of everybody else. I would say those are the big the big four with fertility kind of leading the way for the the subspecialties that we work with today. But we do have referring providers that come from, you know, the broad medical subspecialties because there really is no area of care that uh, wherein outcomes and uh, patient outcomes are not improved by helping those individuals with a BMI over 30 to bring that BMI down below the obesity threshold. Well, I don't really give a crap about those other subspecialties, but what I am interested <laughs> is a little bit more in how you partner with clinics. But the reason why I was okay with having you on the show is because there is a tremendous bottleneck in fertility right now. There's simply more patient demand than there are providers to be able to treat them. And we need other means to help do, I don't know if triage is the right word, but to help with some of the, the treatment that doesn't need to be going on at a fertility specialist so that the fertility specialist can do what only the fertility specialist can do. And so talk a little bit 
but I, I also brought John because it, it didn't seem like, you know, you were necessarily that you had like this really, oh, I don't know, deep monetized partnership with fertility centers. Maybe I'm wrong. How do you partner with fertility centers? Yeah. How do you work with uh, it's, a, it's a great question. Yeah. And I think, look, you're, you're right. The, the challenge for fertility centers in a lot of cases is how to be as efficient as possible at delivering the care uh, that they deliver to as many patients as possible. When you have somebody come in who doesn't meet one of your, you know, sort of basic uh, requirements around care, that's a challenge to, you know, to, to sort of work with that person, especially over a period of time, if they continue to not sort of be within that BMI limit that's required. But what we do in partnering with fertility centers is uh, we try to work as closely as possible with them in support of the the patient's goal of fertility. That means that uh, we try to make the burden in terms of getting patients to us as light as possible for those referring uh, fertility clinics. And then we try to uh, make sure that when that patient is ready to come back, we we make that process of coming back to the fertility center as easy as possible. And so I, I would broadly kind of group our partnership into two kinds of patients. The first one is patients whose BMI uh, precludes them from one kind of treatment or another. So we'll hear frequently that, you know, a, a center has a BMI cutoff of 35 or 40 or so around IVF as a, as a broad uh, category. And uh, the reasons for that uh, have a lot to do with risks uh, from sedation and risks of airway collapse at certain uh, higher BMI. And the, the threshold depends a lot on the facilities that are available and just the, the, the policies that practitioners have put in place. For those patients who have who have a BMI that precludes them from receiving care, we partner with the with the facility to take that patient, understand their fertility goals, understand the the fertility path forward for them, understand the weight target that they need to achieve in order to receive in order to receive fertility treatment. Work with that patient over the course of weeks and months, independent from the uh, fertility practice. And about the only thing that happens uh, during that process is we update the fertility center on a regular basis. And that frequency depends uh, really on the fertility center's uh, 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 preference for those updates. Usually it's about once a month, we give them an update on sort of the patients that we're working with for them. And then uh, when that patient hits that BMI threshold, we then, with the right amount of notice, because in many cases, you know, it takes, you know, four to six weeks to get an appointment with a uh, treating provider, we'll say to those, to those patients who are ready, uh, hey, you hit your, your threshold or you're about to hit that threshold, you're ready to go back, let's get you set up with that care. We'll, we'll work with the fertility, the referring fertility practice to make sure that, that person who previously was just not eligible for care, who previously could not have received treatment, now gets back into their practice in a pretty seamless way and, and, and is able to get care. Typically, we continue to work with those patients because now they're in the second category of care, which is patients who are eligible for fertility services, but who would, but, but, and who are already sort of receiving those, but who would like to continue to lose weight. And for those folks, typically we are treating alongside the referring provider. And again, you know, we make that pretty, pretty seamless to the referring provider. There's no the referring provider they, in this case being the REI. 
Uh, that's correct. Right. Is the fertility, is the fertility specialist. That's pretty seamless to the fertility specialist. They don't have to do anything to change their path of treatment because this patient is, is actively losing weight. We always are making sure that we're up to date on the path of treatment forward for that patient and that we're practicing in line with those care needs. And the patient often, you know, continues to lose a meaningful amount of weight as they go through treatment. We will stick with those patients oftentimes through pregnancy and then uh, afterwards continue to help them to lose weight when it's appropriate to lose weight again, which of course it's not appropriate during pregnancy. So while we're on the topic of referring providers, when we say referring providers, we're typically talking about OBGYNs, sometimes PCPs. And one thing that I've heard from REIs for as long as I've been in the field is there's often a trepidation of disrupting their referral patterns. They don't want to, they don't want to, they don't want OBGYNs to perceive that they're taking their patients why they always send them so that they'll keep getting referrals. Some There's probably some threads of this concern that are valid. Often, I think it's probably not valid. OBGYNs are just as busy, if not busier than REIs, and so are PCPs. And, yep. and, and, and very often, we're talking about low margin insurance patients, which is why I'm interested in exploring this, this telehealth idea. But I, I can hear a couple people couple REIs in the back of my head saying, well, why would we, why would we refer these patients out to a platform like this and piss off the, you know, the, when we could be sending them back to their PCP to have this treated? That's that's a great question. Look, I think, you know, for, for some patients, the PCP is a perfectly appropriate place to treat their obesity. And in many cases, the PCP has already been a part of the discussion, right? So most patients that have obesity are counseled by their PCP that they should be losing weight. They'll ask that PCP, hey, what should I do? And that PCP will have sort of, you know, taken them through their, their, their frontline treatment. I think the reality is in the vast majority of cases, those, that, that mode of treatment doesn't work. And so just like we work with PCPs and, you know, different side, different side of our business, we work with PCPs as the referring provider, as opposed to fertility as the referring provider. And we do that because the PCPs say, all right, I understand that there is this new area of medicine called obesity medicine. And that's, that's our subspecialty. That's a specialty in which uh, uh, form health uh, practices. Our physicians are obesity medicine board. They have, they typically come from an endocrinology or primary care background, but they've all passed their ABOM, obesity, uh, American Board of Obesity Medicine boards. And they just have a, just like, you know, just like a cardiologist has a advanced experience within their area of specialty, our physicians have advanced experience for these harder cases in, in, in the field of obesity. So, while an REI might say, gee, why wouldn't I just send this back to the PCP, who, by the way, sent me the patient in the first place? I think the, the, the short answer is oftentimes those PCPs have already done the work that they're able to do and haven't gotten effective results. And in many cases, when it comes to, to actively treating these patients for, for obesity, many PCPs don't feel that they're sort of the, the right set of folks to, to, to deliver that care, which is why we work them as referrers as well. What evidence supports your idea that that the treatment is very often unsuccessful, that obesity treatment is very often unsuccessful with a primary care provider? So, so I, I think the biggest piece of evidence would simply be the continued upward climb of the rates of obesity in the United States, even though everybody's PCP who has a BMI over 30 will sit them down and say, hey, 
you really need to change this. What are we uh, talking number numbers wise? And I know that you probably have this like memorized for VCs. So like numbers wise, what are we talking about obesity and, and the increase oh, sure. that you're discussing? Yeah, well, look, I mean, you know, uh, today, uh, uh, today the obesity rate for adults in the U S is close to, is close to 45%. And it depends on what, what statistic you want to look at. There's a few that are now suggesting that with the pandemic and with folks uh, being home, there's been uh, some, some pretty substantial increases in that number, but you know, here, and you know, as recently as 1980, the, the, the rates in the U.S. were 10%. Right? This is a this is a health challenge that up until January of 2020, along with opioids, was you know one of the two major health problems that the U.S. faced. And and I think you know we haven't seen sort of any change there. That is, despite uh, a lot of healthcare focus in the area and a lot of counseling from PCPs. I think the challenges that for for many doctors, you know that. There is a there's a sense of hey you know what to to deliver the right care for obesity medicine to deliver you know uh, the right kind of uh, care around weight loss we need to have a pretty active set of uh, interactions with the patient so form health for example meets with our patients once a month with their physician twice a month with a dietitian so they're seeing somebody from form health almost every week and then uh, we're a fully virtual program so everything happens through an app uh, so then those patients are are talking with us almost every day we talk to on average we talk to our patients every day. And that's just not a sustainable model for a traditional primary care practice. In addition to that, for some patients, and then there is an asterisk here because for patients who are who are or may be pregnant or working to get pregnant, many of the medications in the space aren't aren't always appropriate. But for, for many physicians, there's a world of medications that are helpful to patients. And they're not comfortable in prescribing those for a variety of reasons that have to do with training and history and all this stuff. And so that's why, you know, a lot of physicians today are excited to refer out to specialty focused uh, obesity medicine programs. What kind of results are you seeing now? And if you're still in forecast mode, how will you be measuring the results? Yeah, it's a great question. So, so you know, we've seen results that are best in class for uh, obesity uh, clinics. You know, the, the, we have a, our specialty, as I mentioned, is uh, is obesity medicine, and so uh, there's a fair amount of research that looks at uh, the, the the rate at which folks are able to lose weight. You know, for us, patients that are doing great can lose up to 25 percent of their body weight over the course of six months. Those are the results that we have seen. So, very very substantial weight loss. Typically, a patient is losing, uh, you know, about a pound a week. And, you know, for some patients, they'll stop and they'll say, hold on a pound a week. You know, shouldn't I be able to lose it faster with a medically engaged program? And the answer is no, if you're losing weight much faster than that, then it's not sustainable weight loss. And it, uh, you're much more likely to stop and you're much more likely to see rebound after that. And so lots of studies today show that, you know, about a pound a week is sort of the upper threshold uh, for how fast somebody, it's a little, it's a little faster than that when you start uh, weight loss, but the sustained uh, rate is about a pound a week. And, and, and we see that. And I think the thing that's really important for our field is how long does somebody stay in this kind of program? So for a lot of more traditional weight loss, either self-guided or guided through a program like Weight Watchers, et cetera, people retain on those programs for a very short period of time, right? We're talking 20 days, right? 22, 23 days is sort of average retention there. And if anybody's tried it themselves, you've probably had a similar experience. The first two weeks, you were really motivated. The third week, you started to say, I don't know if I want to keep doing this. And by the end of the third week, you had a couple of reasons not to, and you didn't. What we see is that about 75% of our patients are still with us at six, seven, eight months. That's a lot, right? And when somebody sticks around with you for that period of time, you're really able to help them make material changes 
in their life, lifestyle, and health. And you're really able to see those folks go from, you know, from a very high BMI down to something that's more, you know, more clinically helpful. Have you done any abstracts yet? We've, we've done a couple of posters. Uh, we, we did a poster at, uh, at, at the Obesity Society uh, here uh, last year, and we did one at ASMBS, the American Society of uh, Bariatric Surgeons, here this, uh, this year. Summarize a couple of those findings for us. Yeah, I think, you know, in line with what we just talked through. So, you know, typically patients are losing uh, about a pound and, and that we see that retention that is, you know, very substantial during the, during the forecast period. I think, you know, the results that we're the most proud of, you know, are actually coming out of some of our work with fertility centers where, you know, we had just this month, two patients who became pregnant, who had uh, been having, you know, real challenges or weren't eligible to uh, be getting fertility services uh, because of their weight. And after uh, working with Form, uh, went back to their uh, REIs and are now uh, are, are now working on building a family. So that's the kind of thing that we get really charged up about. And, uh, that's that's what the audience gets charged up about too. <laughs> uh, a pound a week and a, a longer enrollment in the program for, for the intervention. What compared to what? Baseline, I guess. What is the, what is the average intervention yield? Well, that's so. So that's really important. The average intervention, self-guided intervention, doesn't yield anything. And so I think that's the really important thing to think about. So, you know, the, the alternative to referring to an obesity medicine provider is to tell a patient, hey, you know, you should maybe join a Weight Watchers, you should, you know, you should work on this yourself. Self-guided interventions, because they don't last long, don't tend to show great results. Uh, you know, Weight Watchers and others have some good clinical uh, studies where they will show that their population is able to lose weight. But the lived reality of somebody on Weight Watchers is very different from a lot of those studies. And the reality is most patients don't stick around on those studies for very long. And so I would, I would suggest to, to folks that are listening to think about their patient population and think about those people who they've said, hey, you know, if you want to have a better outcome, I need you to lose some weight. And, 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 and think about sort of what percentage of those folks were actually able to achieve that weight loss. In, in our experience and, you know, sort of more broadly, uh, looking at the, the broader population data, it's very unusual for someone to be able to under sort of self-guidance or under a more uh, purely behavioral program to lose a significant amount of weight. We're not talking about 10 pounds, you know, but lose 30 plus pounds and to, to keep that off. That's, that's very rare. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask, how do you stratify that a little bit more? Because I, th I imagine some people would say, well, th uh, these programs work excellent. And so to say like self-intervention doesn't work, it could be right, but how do you, what are some of the parameters that, that show us that that's true? Yeah. So, so I think, you know, one of the, one of the biggest one is just sort of the, the overall gain in BMI across population. And, and again, that's been, you know, the, the rate of obesity has been ticking up, you know, very substantially over the course of the last decades with really no pause, right? There, there is not a year in the last, in the last 20 where the obesity rate in the country in the U S has gone down. And, and that's generally the case uh, globally. And so, you know, I think that again, if a person is not able to stay on a plan for more than a handful of weeks, they will not be able to achieve results. You know, you can think about uh, weight gain typically takes a while. So for many patients, they're, you know, gaining, uh, you know, a couple of pounds a year on it, and they may have a year or two and they gained a substantial amount of weight. But if you ask them kind of what was the trajectory of your weight gain over time, typically it's, you know, it's a couple of pounds a year. And just like weight gain can take a while, you know, that weight loss often can take a while, even when it's medically assisted, right? The fastest that you can go is about a pound a week. And so for a lot of patients, what they find is, you know, gosh, if you're staying on that program for, you know, 14 days or 20 days, that might be fine if you want to lose five pounds 
pounds to go to the beach or for an event or something like that. But when you're talking about sustained weight loss, uh, most patients, the vast majority of patients, uh, benefit from that intervention. What? No gold diagnostic commercial. Instead, I want to let you know about some plans for Fertility Bridge happening in the future. If you're looking for a possible career change or if you know someone that is. So I always used to get excited about landing clients. Pretty good on clients now. I get way more excited nowadays when I find an awesome employee that takes ownership of their seat. So now we've got our project manager who organizes projects. We've got our operations manager who does systems for us. We've got our director of client success who manages accounts. We've got a creative director who sets the creative. We've got a digital strategist that handles all of the digital. Next, we want an internal client operations person. So I haven't even written the job description for this, but the client operations person is the person that is responsible for things like call center, like post consult follow-up, like welcome sequence, how you use the EMR to move patients from one step to the next, patient satisfaction, patient support, all the things that happen inside the clinic, that's a full-time seat that we're gonna be hiring for in fertility bridge and stuff that we do now, but we've gotten big enough to where that's its own seat. So that's why I'm putting this as a commercial in this podcast, because I'd love to have somebody with fertility clinic experience, someone that has worked in the fertility field doing at least some of this stuff. There's a lot of people in the fertility field that I just don't feel like are close enough to business outcomes that have worked in marketing rules in the past, but some of you are amazing. And some of you have wanted to implement your ideas at a bigger scale and have been shut down. By the time you work for us, I've gotten buy-in from the client. Either we're doing something or we're not. And so you have the say to be able to contribute to these systems and then own how they're applied to individual fertility clinics that we work with. So again, this job description isn't even written yet. When it is, I'll change the commercial. But in the meantime, if you feel like this is a great fit for you, or it could be, you just want to talk a little bit more about it, you want to learn a little bit more about it, or you think it might be a great fit for someone you know, send me an email, griffin, G-R-I-F-F-I-N, at fertilitybridge.com, and let's see. Now back to the show. How does Form Health get paid? Is there a partnership from the, from the fertility? Does, is, that, no. is that a paid <laughs> fee? It's a, it's a great question, and, and the answer is no. So there's there's no cost to the to the referring provider, and you know uh, we look at this partnership as working to help the we're going to help these individuals, our mutual patients, to achieve their broader health goals. In the context of fertility, the the number one goal at the top of the list is I want to have a baby, and that's the goal that we are working towards together. But just like the fertility, especially uh, uh, just like the REI, is not is not paying and and is not able to pay their referring provider. There's no there's no fee. To the, to the provider who refers patients to form. And, you know, we, we think of this in terms of, you know, what value can we provide to that provider? So that's why we, uh, you know, are keeping them updated in an effective and, and pretty efficient way for their time uh, in terms of how these patients are working. That's why we're making sure that we're treating in line with that provider's sort of needs for that patient when we work with them. And, and really at the end of the day, this is just about us helping these patients together to achieve that fertility goal. So is it a monthly subscription from the great question? Yeah. How do we get paid? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so, so uh, there's two parts to how, how our economics work. 
we are a we are a reimbursed service. So when a patient sees their physician, that service is submitted to their insurance, just like any other physician interaction would be. And then and then that's sort of adjudicated through their insurance coverage, et cetera. Any cost to the patient for labs, any cost to the patient for medication, all of that sort of runs through their insurance, just like it would for any other uh, medical interaction. And then in addition to that, we have a monthly fee that's $99. And that really covers the cost of the dietitians that the patient works with. So there's two parts to that team. One is the physician two is the dietitian. And so those dietetic services are covered by the, 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 by the uh, $99 a month fee, which is paid for by the patient. I want to talk a little bit about the uh, insurance and telemedicine and yeah. that, that will make this tangent make sense because in February, 2020, I was at a small fertility conference, a very cool, intimate fertility conference in Colorado. And we were starting to talk about this novel virus that was developing in the East, but haven't heard people, of it. people didn't really know what was going to happen yet. So this is like the first week of February. And we, at that conference separately, we were also talking about the future of telemedicine, but also kind of how it's a, it was a pain in the neck because, you know, if you practiced it, you, if you hadn't, let's say you're in, oh, Erie, Pennsylvania, and you're seeing patients just across the border in New York state that you would have to have a, in some states, I don't know if this is true for Pennsylvania and New York, but at least in some states, you'd have to have a license to practice in that's both right. states. And it's, that's the case in the majority of states. Okay. And so and then all of a sudden, a month later, a lot of these regulations were were put on hold. Yeah. Health and Human Services and o Office of Civil Rights, I believe, is is are the two agencies that that enforce HIPAA. And so they said, you know, you can use Zoom, you can use FaceTime, you can use Skype. And so, how did that affect or not affect you all at that time? Uh, it, it really, really good question. You know, we we have been a purely telemedical business since we got started, and so we have been working within the the sort of you know fairly complicated telemedical regulatory regime that exists. And so, for us, in some ways, you know, we were we were already really prepared for everybody to get pretty excited about telemed. Um, we didn't change the way that we work with patients. We already had uh, tools that were HIPAA compliant that were in place. I think some of the benefit to some providers was that you know, some of the interstate licensing requirements were, were, were waived or otherwise loosened for a period of time. I think you know, for us, that didn't have a big impact either because our providers you know, were already sort of licensed in these states where they practice. And you know, for us as a growing business, our perspective was um, we never know how long these waivers are going to last and they are really important for some of the emergency or, or near emergency medical treatment that had to happen around, around COVID. But we didn't want to build our business on uh, some of those sands that could shift pretty quickly. And so by and large, you know, everything that we did was highly compliant with the pre-waiver world of, uh, of, of telemedicine. No, that your explanation of how you get paid from patients and from insurance companies and and not from centers is part of the reason why I had you on the show. If people sell to centers, then they're going to be more likely in that sponsorship category. I know that some other people are still going to say to me, oh, that's me too. Why can't I come on the show? Listen, sometimes I'm in a good mood. Keep trying me. And <laughs> But I am really interested in in the idea that we just have to be doing, we have to be getting people to other solutions that are found in tech. And, right. and I 
do think that we need to be propagating that for the triage aspect. One concern that I've seen is we've seen people come in and there's been a couple of them that thought, oh yeah, they're going to be great. They're going to stick around. And then it's like, whoop, they burnt through that money pretty quickly. I didn't know you could burn through $60 million that quickly, but apparently you can. And, and VC is great parties. That's the throat world. So what challenges are you on the lookout for? Yeah. uh, Look, I think, um, you know, we, we think that not surprisingly the world of obesity medicine, the the specialty of treating, treating folks with BMI North of 30, or in some cases, BMI North of 27 with certain comorbidities. We think that is a, a, big, big growth area in healthcare broadly. Today, only about 1% of individuals with a BMI north of 30 are receiving medical treatment for their weight. If you look at any other major medical condition, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, depression, typically treatment rates settle out uh, for reimbursed services at about two thirds. And, and, and I think, you know, we are entering a world with AMA recognizing here about seven years ago that obesity was a medical condition with the creation of the American Board of Obesity Medicine during a world where treatment of obesity will be more the norm than it is the exception. Today, it's absolutely the exception. And, and, and I think that's part of why fertility, for example, has been a big growth area for us because patients' weight so directly impacts their ability to, 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 to conceive and to carry a child with term. And so I think, you know, we are headed over the next 10 years towards a world where, where treatment is more the norm, where we start to see treatment rates north of 50% for individuals with a BMI north of 30. And that doesn't mean that all those people will go to obesity specialists, right? Primary carers will start to treat this uh, more frequently, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, in that world, what we are really looking at over the next 10 years is an incredible period of growth. And I think, you know, for us, as a result, some of the biggest areas of concern are really just, you know, how do we grow effectively? How do we support that in a way that matches with our very high level of standards for the, the care that our patients receive? And how do we continue to do that as we scale uh, larger and larger and across more and more states? So I think, you know, the, the question for, for folks in our space is, you know, as awareness grows, as referrals grow, as practitioners start to say, well, I'd refer out if I saw high sugars, I'd refer, you know, for, for treatment for what looks like it might be, you know, a case of diabetes. If I saw high blood pressure, I'd probably refer out for that for treatment as well. I'm seeing somebody coming with a BMI of 30. That is a medical condition. Of course, I'm going to refer out for that. And as that becomes more of the norm of of, of, um, thinking, you know, I think the real questions are, you know, how do we as a, as a specialty of medicine, how do we make sure that we support that growth in a way that's going to be effective and high quality for all of our patients? So what do some of the obstacles look like? Like you as the visionary of this burgeoning company, when you are thinking that six months to a year, what are the things that you're saying, this is what we're getting over as a company in the next half a year or so? Yeah. Well, look, I think, you know, I think supporting demand is always a big challenge as a growing company, right? So, you know, what we have seen in working with and working with fertility providers and other physicians more broadly is the impact we've been able to have not really has uh, been positive for their patient. And as a result, we, you know, we'll often with a, as an example, with a fertility provider, and they'll say, great, I'm going to refer you the folks that come in and their BMI is over 45 because I can't do anything with them uh, unless we bring that BMI down. 
And within uh, a couple of months, we're seeing everybody with a BMI north of 30. And they're actively treating those patients between 30 and 45, but they've seen such great results with the patients that have a very high BMI that they start to say to everybody else along the path, hey, let me just let me just toss these folks over to form because they know the support is there. They know the results are going to be there. And this is something that the patients want to achieve along with their fertility. And so I think you know, for us, we look to growth and we, and we look to making sure that we continue to support those patients in the best darn way uh, that we possibly can. I, I think, you know, the, the world of, of, of COVID is an interesting challenge for us as well. We are, as I mentioned, purely telemedical. Patients never come into an office. That's really comfortable for patients because now they don't have to leave their home. And even as they go back to work, they don't have to leave the office. They can sit you know, in a conference room like I am now and have that conversation with their, uh, with their practitioner, receive treatment, and then go on about their day. But I think that, you know, we're going to see what changes in people's expectations. You know, what, we, what we've seen across our business is uh, a lot of folks have had some, some pretty material unplanned weight gain during COVID. And so I think that is, you know, an opportunity and a challenge because there's more folks that need help. But at the same time, there's a lot more obstacles in their way that are causing them to gain weight too. So I think, you know, there's, there's some uh, challenges from the medical side. There's some challenges from the side. I thought of two more questions that the audience will be grumpy with me if I let you off the hook about then I've got a, right. then I've got a selfish question for myself that is of zero value to the audience. And then <laughs> lastly, you can conclude with however you want. So but the, I know that some people there there is sometimes a referral paranoia in yeah. this. And again, I, I think most of it is unwarranted most of the time because of how busy we all are. But some people may see certain you, you've you've had luck at least building a, the, the beginnings of relationships with a couple groups. They see another group on there like, well, you know, that person is two miles away from me. If I refer patients to form health, they're going to refer them back to this other group. Hmm. That's interesting. So, so, you know, I think all of these are things that we work really hard to just make sure an issue for our referring uh, physicians. When we receive a referral from a, from a physician, you know, we mark that down and, and we are working with that physician at the very least, keeping them updated uh, on their patient's progress. And then sometimes if that patient's actively receiving treatment, then we'll, you know, kind of get the, uh, the note from the, from the referring provider to make sure that our treatment path is still in line with their path uh, of care for that same patient. And uh, when it comes time to send that person back, we are already queued up with that with that uh, referring physician, the one that sent us uh, the patient in the first place, and we just sort of naturally send them right back. And you know, we keep we keep pretty good records on that internally, uh, mostly so that we can stay in line with that physician's path of treatment. But this isn't something where you know somebody sends us a patient and we say, okay, well, who do we like in you know in the city of Boston? Let's just send them to that uh, to that to that referring provider. I do think you know we we do have growing relationships with a number of providers uh, nationwide and. You know, we have been excited to support our relationship with those providers. So, you know, uh, we have a bunch of providers that say, "Great, you know, we we help generate some content with you. We're always happy to, to, to you know, uh, lend our medical experts out to build a little bit of content with them. We've got you know mutual uh, web pages that we stand up. There's the opportunity to do you know some 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 joint uh, work in building sort of practice volume, and we're always supportive of that. You know, I think we want to do whatever we can to help differentiate our practice partners, our referring partners, and help make it clear to patients that, you know, in coming to uh, this specific REI, it's not just, hey, you're here for one thing and one thing only, but it's a holistic solution that can include weight loss, that can include all the things that that patient needs to make sure that they can have the best chance possible of fertility. 
hopefully that's a more superficial concern. The more sincere concern that they will not let me off for letting you off is what are you doing with the data and what are you going to do with the data? Uh, good question. What we do with the data now is, is make sure that we're treating our patients uh, appropriately and effectively. I don't think that we have any uh, plans around, you know, looking at referral patterns or selling that data to, to other, to other, you know, sort of like larger data entities or anything like that. I think, you know, there are opportunities. The things that we, that we are really interested in with that data is publishing and making sure that the, that the ways in which we are working with patients and the centers that we are working with, you know, are really able to show the difference between those patients that, you know, that, that they worked with and helped bring the BMI down and some of the success rates they had there versus those patients who, for whatever reason, weren't appropriate to refer or weren't interested. And so we are uh, actively working on a couple of paths now to, to start to publish with some of these larger uh, fertility groups. And if any of your viewers out there uh, want to be part of something like that, uh, where we can, you know, really take a look at the impact of, of, of weight management around fertility treatment, you know, that's something where we're looking to add uh, additional practitioners and groups into some of that work that we're doing. Okay. I think I've poked you to the extent that most of them would poke it. I think most satisfaction has, has, <laughs> has been filled. This is totally just for me. My two favorite influencer docs outside of the fertility field, everybody, this is outside of the fertility field. My two favorite influencer docs outside the field are Jason Fung and Peter Atia. And for uh, their, their research and work on longevity, and specifically with fasting protocols. So this is just me. This is just me really curious. How, how much of your protocols involve fasting or, or is that in your purview at all? So, so not really. And, and I guess the, the first, the first thing that I'd put next to that is I think Fung and Atia are often working with folks that have very different health challenges than, than those people who are dealing with obesity, right? You know, to the extent that I've, I've read some of their stuff uh, and I, I think they're pretty interesting, but they're really working on folks that are, you know, kind of already, you know, pretty far down the road of hitting all of the basics of healthfulness and are trying to kind of tweak and do a little bit of biohacking and really make sure that they're squeezing the most they can uh, out of their, you know, out of their, their lives and their physical bodies. And I think that's pretty interesting. We certainly do work with patients on multiple different protocols that help them to control calorie intake. And so, you know, there's two big, two big pieces of our care. One is, is working with that physician, two is working with the dietitian. Intermittent fasting is absolutely one of the tools that our dietitians use. Not so much for, you know, some of the outcomes that Atia and Fung might be, you know, really focused on, but just because there's a lot of data around IF that, that suggests that for some people, it's really helpful with controlling caloric intake. I think we're a little bit more skeptical on data suggesting that your body is burning more calories when you're uh, when you're doing intermittent fasting or that you have sort of increased metabolic activity uh, when you when you're on IF but we absolutely see that it's super uh, effective for a lot of people in helping them to control appetite which helps them to control calorie intake so given that the reason i said that it's not really part of our program is it's not a required part of our program what we do is we we try to work pretty pretty carefully with each patient to make sure that the dietetic approach we take with them is built for them. And for some people, IF just isn't effective. For other folks, you know, they want to try, uh, they want to try a different kind of restriction. They might want to try, you know, meal replacement, or we may believe that's going to be highest impact for them. And so we work within those, within those protocols, but there are a number of our patients that do IF and, and many of them find it to be pretty, pretty impactful, but they apply it and it is applied a little bit differently than what Atia and Fung are typically thinking of. 
What we got to do is get you a show so that you can have those guys on your show That'd be fun. And, and then they can see if they see it the same way. But that's just for me. This audience is mostly REIs, mostly execs in the fertility field, a lot of practice owners. So how would you like to conclude with to that audience, Evan? Yeah, I think, you know, first, it's, it's been fun to have the opportunity uh, just to, to chat with you. I think to those folks that are listening, uh, you know, Form is a practice that is really built to support um, your patient's outcome. And we work today with, with dozens of practices across the country to help their patients to achieve better fertility outcomes, to achieve uh, more pregnancies and carry more, more pregnancies to term. And we strive to do that in a way that has uh, you know, as little friction to their practice as possible but helps them to work with more patients uh, and deliver better outcomes. And so I think, you know, to the extent that that is uh, something that folks are, are excited about, and, and at least in our experience, a lot of uh, practitioners are excited about working with more uh, patients and improving outcomes for all their patients, we're ready and, and, and we'd love to hear from you. And you can track us down at formhealth.co. I mean, I think this is the trajectory that we need to, at the very least, look a lot more into in the field to help expand tech's use of applying the rest of the the health treatment that we might not do. And thank you very much for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.